You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. Welcome to the program. Looking back over some biotech stories covered from 2018 and 2019. And I thought I'd start with a chat that I had with leading experts on the Borrelli ulcer. This is a nasty ulcer that's been affecting people on the Bellarine and Mornington Peninsulas in southern Victoria in Australia. And I spoke with leading experts on these Borrelli ulcers, Professor Tim Stanier of the Doherty Institute and Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. While they acknowledged gaps in their understanding, they explained the spread of the disease from Victoria's Bellarine Peninsula to the Mornington Peninsula and why they believe mosquitoes are the likely link from possums which carry the bacteria to humans. So that's first up. The second story I thought I'd uh, include was recorded in June 2019. It's about taming drug-resistant superbugs. And it looks like heart disease drug Ticagrelor could double as a new kind of antibiotic that's effective against drug-resistant bacteria. And from April 2019, a piece we recorded about the deadly fungus Candida auris spreading around the world. Antibiotics were introduced in the 1940s and have saved countless lives from deadly infections. Now drug-resistant superbugs are becoming more prevalent, preying on the weak and infirm. This is largely due to massive overuse of antibiotics in farming and the third world. And finally, in this roundup of biotech stories that we've covered on the show from October 2018, how to effectively vaccinate against influenza. There were only 40,000 cases of influenza in the 2018 Australian flu season, compared with 230,000 the year before, thanks mainly to an effective and lucky national vaccination program. So stay tuned. Should be an interesting compilation of material covered on the program. You'll find these stories and others on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. Let's get started with coming to grips with the science behind Brulee ulcers. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Let me introduce the two speakers today, uh, who I'm really grateful them to make making the trip down to Mornington from Melbourne, where they both work. Professor Tim Stanier of the Doherty Institute, warm welcome. Thanks, Piers. And also Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. Yes, thanks, thanks, Piers. Thanks for thanks for coming down, guys. And we've been talking a little bit off air already about about possums, about Beruli, and and Beruli is this flesh-eating ulcer, which various people have been affected by on the southern peninsula. At the moment, the main area seems to be between Sorrento and Tutkarook. But it was also known on the uh, Bellarine Peninsula where the numbers of de- well, the number of human sufferers has declined. Mm-hmm. So now it's on the southern peninsula. And I guess one of the concerns is that it, it might spread north and get into the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne and then 
you know, have a, a much wider, a uh, bigger population of people, more density mm. to uh, to cause problems for. And I've actually got a friend who had a Borrelli ulcer, and I've seen them, and I know that he was visited by scientists, and uh, he was one of um, I, don't know, I think it's several hundred people now who've been affected on the Southern Peninsula. But it was a you know really nasty thing, and it's given him a nasty scar. He's mm-hmm. got over it, mm-hmm. and he was a builder who spent a lot of time down on his knees and he actually has resolved to wear knee guards now, uh, which he didn't. And I think he wears, he uses gloves more than he used to. Mm. There are different theories about what causes Baruli. One possibility was it came out of the dirt, but another is that it's, uh, it's being spread by mosquitoes. And then if it's being spread by mosquitoes, well, how did the possums, how did they get Baruli to start with? And not all of the, the possums that are carrying Baruli have ulcers themselves they could be being bitten by mosquitoes and then the bacteria then gets passed to humans so that's that's a, a pretty prevalent theory at the moment but it still yeah. doesn't answer how did the mosquito how did the possum population get Borrelli to start with which i was so, pretty interested so uh, either of you guys want to jump yeah in. but i could i could just there are some key uh, yeah unanswered there are some unanswered questions, Piers, that we have to wrap our heads around. Mm. But things that we have good solid evidence for now are that possums carry the bacteria that causes Borrelia ulcer, Mycobacterium ulcerans, and mosquitoes do as well. And you know, disease transmission to humans occurs when you know we have lots of infected possums and plenty of mosquitoes and plenty of humans all coming together in the one area, which is you know what we've found at Point Lonsdale and now most recently on the Mornington Peninsula. There's that more sort of fundamental question you know, about how did the possums get the bacteria? How do they? Uh, and we don't have an answer to that, but that doesn't mean we can't stop the spread of the disease knowing what we know now. Mm. Possums, mosquitoes and humans. Now, if we can interrupt that chain of transmission say, for instance, by controlling mosquitoes, then we can stop the spread of the disease without knowing all the answers. Yep. Uh, and that's sort of where we're up to with our research project is that we have enough strong evidence to intervene. And Paul might want to comment here as he's led much of the research that's got us to this point. But it's, yeah, we don't have all the answers, but we have some key answers that allow us to intervene. And that's sort of where we're up to with our research project. Paul, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's an interesting question is, do we know everything? And the answer is no, we don't know everything. Um, do we know something? Well, we've been working on it for a long time um, with uh, financial support from the Department of Human Services over 10 to 15 years. And we really got involved initially at Phillip Island and then a bit later on the Bellarine Peninsula. And it was there that we uh, systematically started testing environment samples from all over the place why, by a method we call PCR, which is amplifying bits of DNA. It's mm. the same test you have. If you go to your doctor with an ulcer and they want to check to see if you've got Borrelli, they take a swab and they send it off for this particular type of PCR. And that's the same thing that we've been doing on the environment. Right. And for quite a long time, we were kind of stumbling around and finding a little bit of water was positive, a little bit of dirt was positive, you know, and we really couldn't fit it all together at the point in point lonsdale anywhere at the same time the human cases were increasing but we changed the way we do the pcr so we ended up with a quantitative method Um, this was work led by my colleague janet fife and what that meant is you can instead of saying yes no which was the original version yes it's positive no it's negative now we could do warmer cooler so we could find out how much DNA from, from Mycobacterium ulcerans, which is the bug that causes a Borreliosis, is present. 
And we stumbled across one day this incredibly strong signal that was thousands of times higher than we'd ever had before. And that was a possum excreta sample. And so after that, we started going around Point Lonsdale and we were able to find that about one out of two possum excreta samples detected on the ground, this is way back in around 2008, mm. were PCR positive and we were really stunned by that. And it also kind of explains why, well, it probably explains why you also find a bit of signal in dirt and soil and other things because there's so much possum poo in soil as well. What are your theories on, on why it declined over on the Bellarine and then appeared on the Mornington Peninsula? And I know because I went to the... Uh, both of these gentlemen, by the way, were, were um, present at the at the Rye Community uh, Town Hall meeting. And I'm just going to introduce Cheryl Ann Brody. Yep. Is, is, she does another program at, mm-hmm. at uh, the station here. She's also been in touch with Rebecca Elliott mm-hmm. about getting you guys in. So she's just sitting in on, on, the, on the interview. And if she mm-hmm. wants to, you want to throw something in, then do. But yeah, sure. we're just talking a little bit about origins and, mm-hmm. and some of the questions, I guess, that came up that maybe didn't get a chance to be answered at the, right. at the Rye meeting. Sure. What are your theories on why it has declined on the Bellarine and suddenly appeared over here. And I think there was talk about someone bringing them over in their car boot or something, bringing possums over here or on two occasions. Was that, is that a real theory? It's, it, it's just gossip, but right. But I've heard it several times. I think Tim has as well. Um, so we don't know that that's, okay. in a scientific sense, we don't know that that's true, but right. people have suggested that. Yep. But I think it's a bit like, you know, a good analogy is like a, a scrub fire. So the conditions on the Bellarine Peninsula and the Mornington Peninsula are very similar. You know, lots of people in the summer, um, lots of outdoor activities, lots of freestanding water, which helps mosquitoes, lots of possums living very close to people. But if there's no Mycobacterium ulcerans, which is the bug that causes Borrelia ulcer, nothing happens. But then somehow it's like a spark gets thrown in and then off it goes. So we know that before 2002, there were just no human cases a Borrelia ulcer at Point Lonsdale. But after that, it started and it reached a really, I think it peaked in about 2011 and it is still there, but the number of cases is declining. We also know that before um, about 1990, there didn't seem to be any disease on the Mornington Peninsula um, and we know it really kicked off in 2012. So it's t- that's my mental image of what's happening is the conditions are there, but nothing happens until the bacteria is in- introduced. How is it introduced? I don't know. What happens when it is introduced? Well, then it gets amplified. So the number of possums increases, the amount of positive excreta in the environment increases, which then gets into the soil, but, but it's from the possum excreta. That's what I think anyway then uh, somehow either shuttling between the possums themselves and humans directly so the mosquitoes could be landing on ulcer lesions on the possums and we haven't discussed this yet but we do know possums can get ulcer at quite a high rate we can talk about the evidence for that but or, not every possum that's that's uh, the droppings of which has borrelia in it has necessarily got Ulcers. No, so if the science of that is that if you if you walk around, so this is all published data. Mm. If you walk around Point Lonsdale um, in the mid two thousands, every second on average possum excreta sample that you pick up was PCR positive and quite strongly for mm. M ulcerans, which causes Borrelia ulcer. Mm. Then we had to get special permission, and we worked with zoologists, um, and we had ethics approval. We trapped forty two possums, and 
tested them and took them back to a University of Melbourne place in Ocean Grove, anaesthetized them and took samples from them. And we found that about one out of four of them actually had lesions on them or ulcers on them, which you could swab and culture and prove all virally awesome. So that was a really big new finding that was published in 2010. And it's a public domain paper, so anyone can read it. So basically what it shows is that finding possum excreta on the ground can be supported by trapping the possums. And it looks like about a quarter of the possums at Point Lonsdale during that peak actually literally had the disease, not just carried it in right. their feces. Okay, wow. So that led to the okay, the possums seem to have it, the humans have got it, but when you talk to people about how they get it, there's a hundred different theories. Mm. And, you know, I've got one patient who came in triumphantly one day and said, I know what it is. I was pruning my lemon tree and a week ago I scratched my arm and look now, and, and he had just been diagnosed. But we know from careful science that the incubation period is about five months because it's human you get something horrible, you remember it because it's a scary diagnosis to get, and you think, what was I doing last week? Mm. And you form a very strong view yep. about what it is. And we, so I was able to say we know that, well, I don't think you got it from your lemon tree in Kew because that scratch was a week before the ulcer appeared. Mm. And in fact, it takes about five months. So, so you're then, not going to show any symptoms at no, all until that, then? No, that's what the incubation period is. That's the period between you when you're inoculated or when you're exposed and when you first notice it. And then on top of that, you have to add usually another month for something to happen that you're worried about and maybe even another month for your GP or other doctor to make the diagnosis. So it's very long ago. And people just can't remember accurately back that way. So one way around that is you do a, what's called a case control study. What you do with that is you give a questionnaire to people who have had the disease and a whole lot of controls, people who haven't had the disease, who live in the same area, and you ask them a whole bunch of questions. And that's actually being done currently on the Mornington Peninsula. But we also did that on the Bellarine Peninsula back in 2007. And all kinds of things like, are you, do you surf, do you fish? Do you garden? Do you do this? Do you do that? Where do you go? Um, and then they feed it all into a great big computer program, which is called a logistic regression. Right. And it has one and zero is the outcome, meaning yes, Borrelli ulcer, which was one of the cases, or no Borrelli ulcer, which is a control. And then they look for all the things that seem to predict it. And they ended up with two clear things. One of them was if you reported using an insect repellent, your risk was less than half. And if you reported getting a lot of bites on your lower legs, the risk was more than twice. And but all the not other just things... just any bites, Paul. These mosquito, are... mosquito bites, yes. Yeah. Um, so that was a specific question. And we also had questions in that questionnaire, like March flies and midges. Mm. And we had all... Because we didn't really know what we were going for. We just had a whole lot of ideas. And I think it was about a 12 or 15-page document. Case control study doesn't prove things. It... It suggests things. Yeah. It's not proof. Yeah. But we Could were, you get it by, if you took some, if you took, because there's so much possum droppings yes. everywhere, and they do fight their way into the soil, they get broken up, yes. and they, you know, if you turn over soil, then you'd be mixing in a lot, yes. of, a lot of possum droppings wherever you go. If you had an open wound and you grabbed a handful of possum droppings and you rubbed it into an open wound, can you get Borrelli that way? I, I think it's unlikely. So we've modelled that sort of exposure route in, in the laboratory. 
um, and we can't cause an infection in an ethically approved experimental you know, animal um, experiment. That's a lot of experiments in that sentence. Yeah. If you try in a controlled way, in a controlled laboratory environment, to replicate that scenario you just described, Piers, of an open wound, um, no, and you load it up with bacteria, no, you don't see disease. But the moment you introduce a penetrating injury, so if you take like a, a needle with only a few bacteria on it, less than 10, and just push that through the skin, hmm. then you'll establish a Borrelia ulcer. So it has to be some sort of penetration below the skin. Uh, it's not enough just to have an open wound with the bacteria. So it's so, got to get into the blood. It's got to uh, get into your... No, it, actually, you would have thought so. But, well, it, it, the disease is not caused by the bacteria replicating in the blood. The, the bacteria, right. they get into the subcutaneous tissue, mm -hmm. so relatively deep under the skin, mm. um, and they start replicating in, in... So they stay localized. They don't go through your, that, your whole body. Well, they, the, they might go through your body and appear, you know, so they might be inoculated in your arm and then perhaps you might end up with an ulcer on your leg. We don't really know. But the, the weight of evidence is that you probably develop an ulcer at the site where the bacteria was introduced. Mm. Oh, and Paul, you might want to you've looked at well, we've Well, um, yeah, one of the uh, recent publications we've got from a collaborative research project that involved all the doctors on both peninsulas and in the city and at the Children's Hospital and at Austin Hospital and at Barwon Health and uh, Peninsula Hospital, everyone contributing, we mapped 649 cases of Borrelia ulcer onto a single human form. And it was a student of ours, Arvind Yeramili, who's now a young doctor, who managed to show this, these really good pictures that you can see also um, online that's free-to-air science. And it's, it's a heat map, and it shows you that the distribution of Borrelia ulcer is just not random at all. It clusters strongly around the backs of your calves, around your ankles, the forearms, the backs of your elbows. And it, you, when you see the images, you can kind of imagine that wearing shorts and a T-shirt is probably protective <laughs> because you don't see them that often in those parts of your body. But you, and you rarely see it on the palmar surface of your hand, which is the part that comes in direct contact with the environment, or the soles of your feet. Right. But you often see it around the ankles. Which is where you get yeah. bitten. So now, it's again supporting the skin. It, it supports it. Now, if you were in the garden and there was some possum excreta, which is positive, and you did inoculate that into your... Then I'm, I'm quite confident if it was inoculated, not just sat on the top that you probably could get Borreliosa that way too. But what we're looking at is what is the main way that most people get it? Because if we know the main way that most people get it, not you know the occasional way that some people get it, but mm. th the predominant thing that's causing this epidemic, mm. then we can do something to stop it. Mm. And the evidence for mosquitoes is quite strong. You know, yeah. you find PCR positive mosquitoes where there are human cases. You find PCR positive possum excreta where there are human cases. If you go where there are no human cases, you don't find that. You still find possums and mosquitoes and humans, but you don't find the signal. So it seems that you need all of those things together. The bacteria has to be there. Then the people and the, and the mosquitoes need to get it and amplify it. Probably it's amplified between the mosquitoes, the environment and the possums and the humans are the unlucky spillover hosts who just happen to be there. The system would go on whether we were there or not. But I think our presence increases the density of possums because we provide shelter and support for them. So mosquitoes would would spread broadly between possums if they weren't spreading it also to humans. 
I think so, but it po- it's possible that the possums are once they get infected by you know cause unknown, which we freely admit we don't know, that they could amplify it between them because they recycle their feces. Yeah. They eat their own feces. Um, and they, that sounds horrible, but they do that because they need to extract the relatively low nutrients. So during mm. the day when they're in their drays, they eat their own feces. They feed it to their youngsters so that their youngsters will have the right bacteria they need to break down. It's like... Um, and it's so you like could imagine... the oh, sorry, repository. Yeah. Type. yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine a kind of auto-amplification going on that once it starts, it yeah. could... It could go with or without mosquitoes possibly Mm. Um, so the mosquitoes come in when you try to connect the possums to the humans because people with the disease rarely report having been bitten by by a possum or being jumped on by a (laughs) possum there's some it's always at a distance so Mm. something has to move it from the possum or move it from the environment which is contaminated with possum excreta to the human and so we're Mm. looking for the the main way not that not we kind of there may be two or three ways but if there's one main way that then gives us something to do about it are there any other diseases that uh, that are dangerous to humans being passed around by possums apart from brulee uh well in new zealand where they are the recipients of Australian brush-tailed possums. Um, most of what we're talking about here is really ringtails, yep. but it no, it's not exclusive. We do find really also in brush-tails as well. Right. But in New Zealand, they have got brush-tails. Now they don't have, they do not have also there. It's free of that disease, mm. but they have a massive increase in the population of possums. They're a declared feral species, mm. and they can get tuberculosis, um, which is a human disease, but it's also a cattle disease. And they spread, this is in New Zealand, and it's uh, brush-tailed possums. I'm not talking about Melbourne or ring-tailed possums, and I'm not talking about tuberculosis here, but in New Zealand, some cattle are getting tuberculosis from grazing on grass where po- possums have died. And so that's one of many reasons that New Zealand government and I think all New Zealanders want to get rid, get of, rid them. of them. Make them into, make them into scarves <laughs> yeah, and yes. hats and, and uh, gloves. Apparently they're also damaging native birds and na- native bird habitats. And know. I heard some figure about the amount of the tonnage of, of green material that's consumed by possums mm. in New Zealand mm. every night and it's just unbelievable. Well, actually, know? I think, Piers, you know, the tonnage of foliage consumed by Australian possums in our suburbs would be very high as well. Yeah. And I know people are looking at, at that. Yeah, you know? well... Yeah. Yeah. Just look at tea trees down here, and apparently the mm. tea trees become more tasty. They become sweeter mm-hmm. the less leaves they've got on them because right. they're concentrating the oils mm-hmm. into less leaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why when trees start to get attacked by possums or eaten by possums, it gets worse and worse. It, it sort of amplifies, magnifies. So trees get wiped out, and then they become dead, mm-hmm. and then they're just sitting there as, as uh, fuel for a bushfire or... Mm. Might be worth, um, worth I have got a question, actually, oh, yes. if I can um, contribute. Um, um, have we considered in the the research um, an Indigenous solution? Like, have we asked for an Indigenous advice as to what they would would do with with the problem? There's many levels to that question. At the Rye Public meeting, we shared the stage with an Indigenous person. She had some interesting ideas, mm. but it's about whether. Um, you're talking about the disease of controlling mosquitoes or controlling possums. But I think the main thing about controlling mosquitoes is it, the we think that reducing mosquito bites will reduce the disease. Mm. But the way that is done, how it is done, doesn't matter. Right. So if you can do it without using any anything that might other that people might be worried about, for example, hoverage spraying or anything that could affect bees, for example, 
that's still a good thing to do in terms of um, if you can knock down the mosquitoes by controlling the water sources, by avoiding the use of these things, we would still get the same outcome. So is that what you were kind of getting no, at? It doesn't really matter how you control mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah I understand that. And as far as controlling mosquitoes, I think there's there's been a number of um, remedies for that over you know many years that have yeah. been proven to be quite adequate, mm. especially in the summer when we're yes. you know um, much like sunscreen, they're kind of used all the yes. time. Yeah. But further to that, like because of the the engagement um, with the unknown, so yes. that the the block of space that we're investigating. Still, I, I was intrigued as to whether there would be a consultation with an Indigenous group or body that may have input. I'd, I could say we'd be very receptive to that. And that's, that started, I guess, at, the, at that right public meeting where we were sort of introduced to one community leader, Indigenous leader. Yeah, who we found very impressive, actually. She had a really deep understanding of the biology of what's going on on the Mornington Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just going to re- remind everyone who we, we've got in the studio. It's Professor Tim Stanier from the Doherty Institute and Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. The community meeting was interesting and I think definitely there was a majority of people there were quite concerned about the effect on possibly their veggie patch, mm-hmm. food that they might grow in their garden at home. They were concerned if they if they had a respiratory illness, if they were sort of elderly or infirm or or the young. Um, those were sort of a lot of the concerns. I'm just paraphrasing sure. that meeting, but I thought in some ways it was hard to get the science forward in the face of that kind of uh, overwhelming uh, concern that was there. And I think it's it, uh, to me it's kind of interesting because I think that there's there's going to be plenty of examples where society has to accept the science, mm-hmm. um, and yet. You know, that can be really difficult to do from the yes. scientist's point of view. So I think this is kind of like a, an interesting kind of case study yes. for other things that may crop up in, in the future and probably have happened in the past as well. Well, I think Tim and I are both very sympathetic to the concerns that were expressed and we understand how people feel. We also were responding to demands for action against Barulli ulcer. So in the end, this is a mm. local community problem and mm. the, uni- the, the local community has to sort out the balance and the scientists can bring evidence and they can bring solutions and different solutions cost different amounts of money Mm. so that's really what the role of science is to bring evidence but i think when people get really upset and they get worried they they tend to reject everything Mm. not not just the part that is debatable and you know there are definitely arguments for and against mm. using these things and perhaps it's better not to and and the local people may yet decide that and i think this was this was said at that meeting but it is a it's a kind of balancing the health risk that the, the what how real the health risk is yes versus the effects of doing something like spraying or yes. fogging and that sort yes. of stuff anyone who's been to bali they fog up there all the time you, yes. you sit there by the pool and there's a Guy happily fogging the garden for mm. you, and you're probably you're probably happy he's doing it because <laughs> you don't want to get some yes. 
mosquito-borne illness, yes. dengue right. fever, or whatever whatever's yeah. going around. Yes. So, so it, it, I suppose it just depends on the context. And and uh, and there was a, a, a petition that was put out there, which I, I had a look recently. I think they've got uh, sixteen thousand signatures. People sort of saying that they didn't favour the fogging or spraying. Yes, I suppose really what those people have to understand is that there's going to be a, there is potentially a trade-off in in making that um, taking that position or, or making or insisting on their their leaders or the shire or elected well, representatives I think the people always had the power because it was always going to be as originally planned it was an opt-out so people could opt out and now it's been changed from that meeting um, to opt-in so people have to opt-in it just became clear that scientifically we were unlikely to be able to answer the question because there's just not there unlikely to be enough opportunity and then you're just spraying for no possible scientific benefit so it seems so that at the moment will not go ahead this season just on that my understanding was that the spraying was was kind of an experiment to confirm so that if you saw the numbers of human infections drop off post spraying then that added weight to the idea that mosquitoes were the vector Is it, that- it becomes the final evidence that because we we're pretty convinced already that they are a major vector, you know, one of the most important ways of getting Borreliosa. But it, it, what would have said is this is what the government can now do or the Shire can now do. They can trust that spending money on controlling mosquitoes by what, whatever means, which doesn't have to be ongoing spraying. It could be larva siding or it could be local control source reduction. But, but it's worth now doing that because we now know the final piece of, of evidence is there that this is where you should spray spend your money if you have a big Borrelia outbreak on your hands. Mm -hmm. So that was the idea behind it. And it was designed to be done sort of in a block randomised way. So some areas wouldn't be interfered with and others would be. And then you'd try to count the number of Borrelia cases from each area. That was the that was the idea, and then if it looked successful, whatever intervention it was um, that reduced mosquitoes successfully would be operate, offered to other people. But as I said, that's not going ahead this year, and there are con- community consultations going ahead. So there, what you said earlier is true. There's a risk. You've got to sort of balance risk against benefit. So if you're an individual person with Borrelia ulcer, then you take antibiotics for eight weeks, which are mostly well tolerated. Okay, so they're very strong antibiotics. But they are. They're special antimycobacterial antibiotics. You know, your urine goes bright orange from day one, which is one of the drugs coming out in the urine. Thanks for coming down, guys. Professor Tim Stanier of the Doherty Institute and also Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. We've talked in the past about how there's a lot of drug-resistant superbugs that mm. are becoming increasingly prevalent around the world, and one of the reasons for that is the over overuse and abuse of antibiotics. Yeah. You know, your classic antibiotics like um, amoxicillin, these kind yeah. of general-purpose antibiotics have been sort of thrown away like sort of candy. Yeah, people like think that. that with a cold, they're like, oh, I need antibiotics. Yeah. It's going to do nothing. Yes. So by yes. taking it is introducing this antibiotic into the system, and then there's a resistance built yes, up to that. Yes, that's right. So the bugs get too used to the one type of defense, and they mutate 
communicate and they uh, find ways to the strongest resist survive. Yeah, yeah, the strongest survive. And, and some of them are really, really dangerous, like golden staph, those sort of really nasty bacterial infections that can kill people and do kill people around the world. We've got plenty of stuff on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au, if you want to listen about this, the underlying reasons, overprescription, um, overuse in the third world. Um, I remember being in Thailand, and, and Thailand's a lovely place, nothing against Thailand for a moment, but I just remember how easy it was to get antibiotics. Mm. I had a, a, you know, a cold or something when I arrived there, and rather than going seeing a doctor, mm. rather than getting any kind of information, particularly from a pharmacist, mm-hmm. I was able to just walk into a, a kind of like a, a dispensary mm-hmm. uh, and just say, I want amoxicillin, please. Yeah, okay. and, and they sold it to me and it, it, and it worked, yeah. I would say. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I was grateful. But these sort of things do need to be regulated. I believe in Australia, doctors are becoming a bit more reticent about mm-hmm. prescribing it, a bit more selective. You might be better off to let your own immune system fight something mm-hmm. rather than sort of taking the potentially easy way out, mm-hmm. which is to prescribe antibiotics. There's a recent thing that's caught my attention in the news It's a drug called Ticagrelor, which is actually a cardiovascular drug. So it was developed with a completely different purpose in mind, Mm -hmm. which was to help people with heart conditions. Mm -hmm. And then they noticed in some of their patients that one of them might have, who was in hospital, might have had actually pneumonia as well, because mm-hmm. they can go together. You know, you can sure. have secondary infections or you can have other things that, that people who are kind of already immunocompromised because of a heart condition, they can wind up with uh, a chest infection or mm-hmm. pneumonia, something like that. And they noticed when they were prescribing this particular cardiovascular drug that the incidence of pneumonia seemed to be decreasing. And that was when they, you know, they saw this often enough that they kind of thought, well, hang on. Is there a side effect? Is there is there an unexpected consequence of this ticagrelor drug, which mm. we've been using with this patient to treat their heart condition, which is having an antibiotic effect? And it turns out it was. Mm. Now, there's a lot more. I'm not... People shouldn't be sort of thinking, oh, suddenly uh, the whole problem's been solved. <laughs> but what they've definitely decided is that there is reason to look closely at the possibility of a new class of antibiotic drug being found, mm-hmm. being stumbled upon, that beautiful serendipity which can happen in, in medical science. In fact, I think it was in the 1940s that antibiotics were originally discovered, which was a fungus. Someone in a lab took it by accident, realised that it had a, a positive effect for them, and that was the breakthrough that led to... Yes the development of antibiotics and the widespread use of them, which has saved countless lives. I had a splinter or something in my finger about a year ago, and I just kept playing with it. You know, like when I was sitting at a desk or whatever, I'd be playing with it in my hand. And anyway, the whole thing got infected, and I had this sort of big, you know, growing red patch on my finger Mm. where it was infected. Mm -hmm. Sounded terrible. (laughs) Went to the doctor, and and he he said to me, he gave me some antibiotics, which cleared it up, but he said to me, if this was 100 years ago... I would have either had to chop your finger off or your arm off oh. or you would die. Yeah, right. So an infection like that mm. could kill people. Yeah. As, you know, you could you could stub your toe wasn't and it, lose your leg. This well, sort of thing happened. Yeah, dur- during the First World War, wasn't it, you know, you know, as in pre-antibiotics, that, you know, a simple cut was essentially, that was it, you were done. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the... the the, during World War Two, after the antibiotics were then found, that certainly helped Absolutely. so many soldiers, so yes. many lives. Yep. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, the greater population as and, well. And awareness of the importance of, of hygiene, that sort of stuff, yeah. was a was a huge help. The, yeah. the discovery of bacteria, mm. you know, this is all stuff which predated the existence of the, the development of antibiotics. Mm. So there were kind of steps on the road to to helping people, preventing a, a an infected finger, mm. meaning loss of of arm or hand or 
I guess the question remains then. I mean, this is this is an amazing find, uh, and more is obviously yet to be learned about this. Mm. But does this then uh, allow for the creation of super super bugs, which you know resist this particular <laughs> well, drug? Quite yeah. possibly. I think it's early days, but it is resistant to. And I can just run through some of the, the things that the, there, there are signs that they can deal with. And these were very dangerous, often deadly strains of bacteria. So we mentioned golden staph, methicillin resistant S aureus. Uh, which is MRSA, MRSA, yeah. Yeah, um, Enterococcus fecalis, which might be something to do with human excrement by the sound of things. So a bunch of different types of bacteria, including that one, the one that most people know well is, is golden staph, particularly nasty disease and one that is drug resistant mm, that, that mm. doesn't respond you can give it conventional antibiotics and they're also looking at you know they're, they're combining this heart drug which seems to have the antibacterial effects as well with antibiotics to see how they work together you know look as i said there's, there's a lot of work to be done in this area it's a little bit like viagra you know many years ago it was initially that was for a heart drug and then that led on to uh uh, the blood flow related improvements uh, and has become a huge seller so this you know that potentially has you know there, maybe there are other drugs like this that have, that have been created or will be created which will have that side effect which are uh, a benefit for the, you know killing the, the the bad bacteria yep yeah we'll post links but uh, it's on a website called jamanetwork.com and just quoting from this report it's an open access report that's been published quoting from that it says our findings encourage future investigation of potential new ticagrelor derived antibiotics devoid of antiplatelet activity against multi-resistant staphylococci and enterococci mm. so potentially good news in that fight against superbugs around the world yeah, You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. There's a major global health concern, and this involves the rise of drug-resistant infections. Uh, Fungi and bacteria are evolving to be resistant to many antibiotics. Mm. Now, there's a bunch of reasons... We've actually got a podcast already on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au, about the overuse and abuse of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of in addition to that because there's been some outbreaks of a fungus called Candida auris. It's named that because it was actually first detected in a Japanese patient several years ago, I think decades ago, and it was found in the patient's ear. And so hence the name Aurus. Um, Candida yeah. Aurus, yeah. There's various reasons that are being cited for this, and I'm going to go into those a little bit later. Just to give you an idea of how virulent this is, and it's actually affecting people right around the world. It's been found in South America, it's been found in Africa, uh, it's been found in, in parts of America and Asia as well. And, and just to caveat, I guess, that it is mainly preys on people with a weakened immune system. So it's, That's right. Yeah. A good point to make. So it's the people who are dying of this are people who, do, who generally are in hospital for other reasons. And one of the real issues is, uh, is that it, it can really infect uh, hospital facilities and can get inside medical equipment, respirators. In fact, there was a case in New York in a hospital there where this particular fungus was found in a patient. They locked down the place, you know, they isolated the patient, put them in an isolated ward, but they basically had to completely strip the room that they were in away. Yeah, not just the medical equipment, it was actually some of you know, the linings on the wall, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it was really quite amazing. Every nook and cranny of this room, they had to disinfect somehow. 
they actually had to take tiles off the ceiling and the floor because they found that they couldn't get it out any other way. But it was in the uh, the bed, the doors, the curtains, the phones, the sink, the whiteboard, the poles and, and medical pumps, the mattress, bed rails, canister holes, window shade, ceiling, every single item in the room, wherever they did a test for this fungus, mm. they found it yeah. was positive. Yeah. So a real issue to clear it out adequately and to get rid of it properly. And then the whole point of this is there. this is not something you throw antibiotics at. No. This is a fungus that has been able to grow and survive because the antibiotics that we use typically for fungus has not been effective at all on it. Yeah, that's right. It is believed to be caused by the overuse of antibiotics, which were developed in the 1940s. Up until then, if you got a bad enough cut, you trot on a stick you you know rub you scratched yourself on a barbed wire fence if you got an infection it basically could mean either an amputation or it could mean death mm. you know and this was a thing that really i mean it took out a lot of people it was a major problem around the world f- forever up until the 1940s mm. when antibiotics were introduced but since then what's happened is that antibiotics have been mass produced uh, particularly in recent more recent years in places like india and china where they're very very um, freely dispensed mm-hmm. they're cheap they're mass produced things like amoxicillin which is your kind of frontline antibiotic which uh, support spectrum absolutely that used to be effective but because you've got people in uh, in sub-saharan africa or in in india or in elsewhere in in the world particularly third world countries people who aren't qualified pharmacists selling this for Mm. profit motive Mm. and for cheap if your child's sick you're going to take what you get and and hope for the best if you have the common cold there's no point in taking an antibiotic that's right it's just not going to be effective that's right and uh, you know that that is i think one of the things we've got i need i must have this i've got to have it and so you by taking antibiotics if you have the cold you're actually being part of the problem even in australia i mean a friend of mine got quite sick just after christmas he was told that it was a virus and therefore not to take antibiotics so he abstained this thing hung around for several weeks and then he eventually got rid of it with antibiotics with a strong cause of antibiotics so it can be both ways but you can't treat a virus with antibiotics mm-hmm. so the, the flu influenza all that sort of stuff which happens in winter we're moving into flu season in australia the flu shot is a great preventative of those things of, of many strains last flu season in australia a year ago it was particularly effective we've got a podcast on our website about why it was so effective but they just got lucky they picked the right strains from overseas to build into the vaccination that they gave people the flu shot um, and it was particularly effective let's hope it's it, the same thing happens this year but but that is one thing uh, but a virus cannot be treated with antibiotics and and knowing the symptoms or being smart enough to hold back before sort of being trigger happy and and, and issuing antibiotics is something that doctors need to do and yeah. are increasingly doing in australia and, and elsewhere but unfortunately antibiotics are available for sale through people who aren't qualified even as pharmacists mm. and they are finding their way into sort of mass use and and mass misuse the other huge area that they've used it and i wasn't as aware of this as as i am now after these uh, various articles that i've been reading for this story in agriculture rather than spending money on animals being kept clean and and controlling disease mm-hmm. transfer between populations of cows or cattle you know that are being moved around from sale yacht or or, or or even exported as part of the live trade which australia does mm-hmm. the sort of simpler way of, of dealing with those uh, those health issues that animal populations may have is just to issue them with blanket amounts like vast amounts of antibiotics yeah. so again it's entering the, the food it's, well, yeah. it's, it's entering the, the food system but it's also entering the wild. So the bugs that previously would have been affected by antibiotics, bacteria is the category of bug we're talking about, as opposed to viruses. 
those bacteria are, are developing immunity because they're being swamped. All the different types are being swamped with uh, antibiotics, often through agriculture. That's where you're getting these emerging superbugs because mm. they are evolving to deal with these mass-produced mm. antibiotics. Mm. The other area which we've uh, mentioned at the start of this story is in the area of funguses. Now, they reckon that, again, so many funguses used to be out there in the wild prior to the 1940s when the first antibiotics were developed. Then because of this huge amount of antibiotics that was hitting funguses around the world, a lot of the ones that were out there in the wild were wiped out mm-hmm. and have been wiped out. But mm-hmm. what that's allowed is for this rare Candida auris, which was rarer but more deadly, for it to actually find a slot. So other funguses were wiped out, allowing it to have a slot mm. in the sort of fungus world. And it is apparently not affected by a lot of different types of antibiotics. So it's it's not completely immune to all of them, but it's immune to 90% of antibiotics at, at this stage. The types of symptoms that people are presenting with are, are very common symptoms. They get fever, aches and fatigue. That's the sort of symptoms you get when you've got this fungus in you. But unfortunately, if you're already in hospital with some other type of illness, Mm. that makes you particularly vulnerable. So young people, the elderly Mm -hmm. or people with chronic disease or with immune systems that are already compromised, Mm -hmm. they have got issues. And as I said, it's incredibly fast at spreading... There have been hospitals around the world that have been affected by this. And there has been some suggestion that hospitals, uh, a couple in Europe, one in the UK and one in Spain, were quite arguably negligent in actually informing patients about the fact that there had been these outbreaks. Or resistant to, yeah. Unwilling to fess up about this. Now, one reason was they didn't want to cause mass panic, but also arguably there was a profit motive involved. They Mm. didn't want to turn, they didn't want to discourage new patients Mm -hmm. from using their facilities. And in some cases, these are highly specialised private hospitals which have got wealthy clientele flying in from all over Europe or the Middle East to use facilities and, and, you know, the reputation justifies that kind of patronage. But if people are finding that they've got drug-resistant superbugs like Candida, Aurus, that have got into their medical equipment, you wouldn't want to have a respirator put in your in your nose or down your throat, and then find that you know you've got a superbug lurking inside mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So, so these are very serious issues. One in dealing with them, two in trying to regulate the appetite and the the abuse and overuse of antibiotics in the first place, particularly in the third world and in agriculture. Very hard to change habits in that area yeah. without throwing a, a decent amount of money at it. But then also the other issue has been. The unfortunate habit of some medical institutions, hospitals, clinics and the like of being a little bit backwards in coming forwards about the problems they may have with uh, this particular fungus. Which apparently, according to um, a paper in the journal Mycosis, uh, reported that 41% of the infected patients died within 30 days. Yeah, it's, it's serious in the, the United States. There were 587 cases of people having contracted Candida auris that have been reported anyway, concentrated with 309 in New York, 104 in New Jersey, and 144 in Illinois. That's according to the Center for Disease Control. As we mentioned, there have been outbreaks in other parts of the world, India, Africa, the Middle East, Japan, parts of Asia. This is a very serious thing, and it's going to take kind of a change in culture and some serious money to be spent in, in yeah, the area. research yeah. yeah in research but also in in agriculture you know having more expensive systems to ensure the health of animal populations rather than just relying on antibiotics to keep mm. them healthy the other thing that uh, i came across is that 
in a lot of countries in Europe, for example, if you get if you eat some meat from the supermarket and you get food poisoning from it, the barcode on the packaging actually identifies where that meat was sourced in detail, like the exact farm where it came from, so that if there is a health issue, they can track it down. They can go to that farm and say, okay, we've got a problem with your meat, sure. yeah. rather than having no idea where it came from, and so much harder to track the source. In the United States, they do not have that tracking system. I'm not sure whether they do in Australia. It would be interesting to know, but but in, certainly in America. America, they don't have that system. Mm. So if they have a, a food poisoning outbreak, it can make it much harder to track where it came from. Various lessons coming out of this. We do have a growing problem of superbugs around the world, and in particular, fungi and bacteria are evolving to be resistant to many, if not most, antibiotics. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you've liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter. Two thousand seventeen was a really bad year for for influenza virus in mm-hmm. Australia. If you may remember, uh, cast your mind back a couple of years, eighteen months or so, and you know people were dropping like flies. People were dying of it. It yep. was a really serious uh, season for the flu, and that was despite the um, the sort of uh, the, the the prevalence and, and wide use of flu shots, mm-hmm. which is still having the, having the WHO, the World Health Organization, hadn't they come out? I believe at the start of twenty seventeen season saying we expect this one will be. A, a big one and yeah. uh, make sure you get vaccinated and yet 2018 this flu season that's just basically finished mm-hmm. or finishing now was far far less so it was actually 83 percent there was a fall uh, of 83 percent in what doctors say is the result of science guesswork and a bit of luck so flu cases in australia dropped compared year on year from 2017 to 18 by 83 percent right what was the difference what made that difference um and they believe that it was the effectiveness of the flu vaccine that was offered this year in 2018 mm-hmm. as opposed to 2017 where they didn't get it quite right. right. So some of their guesses in terms of what they put into that mm-hmm. that vaccine weren't as effective. It mutates. Because it makes it every year, doesn't it? It changes, so absolutely. use they, the same one. They have to change it because yeah. the virus itself mutates very rapidly that's why it's such a deadly virus because it's it, it mutates it changes its form so the previous remedies or the, the previous vaccinations which may have been effective aren't effective mm-hmm. so the 2017 vaccine would have been based partly on what was in 16 mm-hmm. but also trying to anticipate the way that it might which way you know, using information yeah. from overseas a whole bunch of scientific bodies from around the world collaborate to for, to, to work out what to put into those, those vaccines mm-hmm. so australia works closely with a whole bunch of other organizations medical organizations around the world scientists and so, so they're saying that the number of people that uh, contracted the influenza virus was also reduced yes absolutely sim- there were just forty thousand flu cases recorded from january to september 2018 in australia compared to almost two hundred and thirty thousand cases in the same period of 2017 those, okay. are, those are federal government figures the president of the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, in the ACT, so Canberra-based, said the decrease was due to more people getting immunised, so using that, taking advantage of that, that fairly cheap, I think it's $20 or which less. Is, which is free for, um, I think, uh, the, the very old and yes. I think the very young yep. as well. Yeah. So about $20 for adults in most places. Some places it's free. It was more effective this year than last year. So every year the health authorities choose to keep some of the strains from the previous year, add one or two new strains to substitute for a new strain, and basically a very intelligent, well-researched guess is made. But it's still a guess. 
they emphasise. There's a bit of science, a bit of luck. Anyway, look, a really great result for Australia. I think there's been, 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 the- it's been reported around the world. Other countries have really taken note of the success of, of this year's flu, uh, flu vaccine program in Australia. Do, do they think it's repeatable because it was such a fluke this year? Or do they think that uh, maybe next year they can sort of go down that same path? Because if it is a bit of a random guessing when they're sort of getting this concoction together, uh, it could easily fall, you know, the pendulum could swing the other way potentially next year. I think that that's why they're saying it's a combination of, um, of luck, being clever about what you put into the, the flu vaccine, and, and clever about how you anticipate the way that the influenza virus will change over time. So all those factors come into play. They all lined up really well in 2018. There's no guarantee that it'll do as well in 2019. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they do also say that there was an increase in the uptake of the vaccination. So I think you know, so many people sick the previous, the previous year with you know, 230,000 cases in Australia and some people dying, hospitals under strain, hospitals not able to deal with the mm. strain in some cases, not able to deal with all the cases of people who were sick. I think that that was you know, enough of a warning. So people in 2018, you know, more people got the vaccination. And I've been, doing, and, I've been doing it for the last, I don't know, probably five or six years. Children can get it, they can get it in a, two, a two-stage vaccination. So they get kind of half and then they think they wait a month and they get the other a half. booster type shot. Yeah, yeah, but it's not to say there was no illness and no people were sick, but it was just less severe, less yeah. less full on than, than It's interesting uh, to see the actual total number of vaccination numbers from last year versus uh, this year and see, you know, if there was more people that, that took up that, that offer to have the vaccination shot. Because, you know, t- having the vaccination is not just for yourself. It's mm. about herd immunity. So if, um, if neither of us take the, the shot and uh, I get a little bit sick from the the flu like I, I don't have the full severity of it mm. I can pass that on to others and if you haven't had the shot maybe you can contract it but if um, I have the shot and I never get it then I can't pass it on to you so it's not just about you know your own health it's about who you pass so, it on course, to as absolutely. well absolutely yeah. the ACT's chief health officer professor Paul Kelly said the process of developing the vaccine was complex and that's where he's described it as a bit of science and a bit of luck. He went on to say the issue with the flu virus is it's a tiny thing, only six genes, and it has this ability to change itself. And even subtle changes can remove that immunity that you build up from a previous infection. Just because we didn't have flu this year, that doesn't ma- doesn't in any way predict next season. So it's likely flu will still be a problem as it is each winter they're definitely urging you to remain vigilant. Yeah, in, in, get, the, in, get the flu shots every year for your health and the health exactly. of others. Exactly. Yeah. Now, look, just some information from the Australian Influenza Surveillance Report. This is done by the um, Australian Government, the Department of Health, health.gov.au is the website there. And this was the, for the fortnight ending the 7th of October 2018. So it's only been two weeks. In the previous fortnight to October 7, um, at the national level, the majority of indicators for persons-to-person transmission of influenza and influenza-like illness continued to decline, signalling that nationally the season peaked in early September. Influenza continued to be the dominant cause of ILI among patients uh, attending Sentinel GPs. So that's influenza-like illness. Mm -hmm. The severity, clinical severity for the season to date, as measured through the proportion of patients admitted directly to ICU and deaths attributed to influenza is moderate. Currently, the impact of circulating influenza on society, as measured through the proportion of people with ILI taking time off work and the burden on hospitals, is low. Virology. Uh, This fortnight... The majority of confirmed influenza cases reported nationally were influenza A, 86%, and where subtyping data was available, influenza A, that's H1N1, 
uh, was the dominant subtype. Children aged less than 10 years appear to be more commonly infected with influenza. However, the severity of illness in this population is on par with other age groups. So there you go, some extra information there from the health department, health.gov.au. That's the regular fortnightly Australian influenza surveillance report. You can go and check it out yourself. Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RWPFM on Facebook, Infinity RPP on Twitter. Thank you.